Well, as we turn to God's word this morning, we're in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 in particular. Uh, now, this is a passage that identifies the devil as a, as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, and so we want to look especially this morning at what does that mean? What does it mean that the devil is looking to devour us? And how do we keep the command that this passage gives us, which is that we must resist him firm in the faith? Um, now, as I was thinking about just how to uh, get across, how to understand uh, these words in First Peter, that the, that the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and as I was trying to wrap my mind around what that means, uh, it just occurred to me that there's probably no better place in the Bible to go to understand the work of the devil than the book of Revelation itself. Uh, the book of Revelation, as the name itself indicates, is a, is a book of revealing, of, of uncovering things that are hidden. Uh, so because the devil is a spiritual being, we can't see him, right? We don't know where he is. We don't always know what he's up to. And so we need God to reveal to us uh, who the devil is and what he is up to. And that is precisely what much of the book of, of Revelation is about, is about telling us the schemes of the devil and what he is up to. And so the other readings that we'll have this morning will focus on uh, that reality of the devil and the work of the devil in the world today. So Krista will come and read for us from First Peter. After that, Paul will read for us from Revelation 12, 7 to 12. This is where the, the figure of the devil is most prominently introduced in the book of Revelation. He is that ancient serpent, it says there, the one who tempted Eve, even back in the garden. Uh, but then I want us to look at two other figures in the book of Revelation that are very much connected to the serpent, very much connected to the devil, that shows us where the schemes of the devil are most prominent today. And so the other two passages we'll read will introduce these two other characters and will also tell us something of their connection to the devil himself. And so Kathy will come and read for us from Revelation 13, 1 and 2, which will introduce a figure to us uh, that John calls the beast. Uh, and you will see that the beast gets his power because the devil gives the beast power. And then after that, we'll come to Revelation 17, 3 to 6. Nate will read that. And that will introduce us to the woman Babylon. And we'll see that the woman Babylon rides upon the beast. And so this woman Babylon also gets her power from the devil. And so as we're reading through these passages in Revelation, just listen for those characters and listen for the connection that John himself in the book of Revelation gives between these characters and the power of the devil. And then again, I'll come back and we'll look at 1 Peter uh, 5, 8, and 9 more closely just to see how we as a people can resist this work of the devil. So, Krista, if you want to go ahead and begin us now. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Revelation 12, 7... No, yeah, Revelation 12, 7 through 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Revelations 13, 1 and 2. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were bachelor's names, blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like a mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Revelation seventeen three through 6 And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now we all will recall that First Peter has had a lot to teach us about suffering, and it was written to Christians who were suffering greatly. And in one sense, their experience is quite different than ours, is it not? We are not persecuted in the same way that they are persecuted. And yet, I think we'll see in our passage this morning that we also have a significant overlap between what they experience and what we ourselves experience when it comes to the work of the devil and the opposition from the devil that we all experience. So first, as we look at 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Just notice what Peter is saying the devil is doing. What is his work? It says, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And what does it mean that he is seeking someone to devour? Well, if you just go on to verse 9, Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, the same kinds of suffering. And so the connection that I see here in 1 Peter 8 and 9 and these verses themselves is that the devouring work that Satan is doing is this work of suffering that the Christians are experiencing. It is the persecution that they are undergoing. In other words, Peter is attributing the the suffering that they're going through, the opposition that they're facing from the authorities and from the world, he's attributing this suffering, this opposition, to the devil. And that's why he calls the devil a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, because that's what the devil is after. He is after our harm. 
He wants to make us suffer. He doesn't want us to experience a life of fullness and joy and freedom and peace. No, the devil wants us to die. And so, how is it that Peter would attribute these things, these sufferings, to the devil? I mean, Peter also makes clear that all of the suffering that Christians are enduring is according to the will of God. So Peter's not uh, saying that the devil is ultimately the one in control of their suffering. Rather, he is saying that on some subordinate level, underneath the power of God, the devil is at work and is producing suffering in these Christians' lives that Peter is writing to. Well, I think when we go to Revelation, when we go to the passages that we just read this morning, we can see how Peter comes at this mindset of understanding the work that Satan is up to to cause people to suffer. And so I do want to look a little more closely at those texts that we just read a moment ago. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn now to Revelation chapter 12. We first want to look at what Revelation tells us about where the the dragon, where the devil is right now. And so what do we have to fear precisely? So Revelation 12, beginning in verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Okay, now Revelation, the dragon is another name for the devil, as we'll see in just a moment. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so just understand the picture that Revelation is giving us here. The devil and his angels, the dragon and his angels were in heaven. They were in the the throne room of God, the dwelling place of God. And it says a great battle arose and Satan lost this battle. And what happened when Satan lost this battle? It says he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. In other words, he was cast out of the place of God's dwelling and he was cast into our place of dwelling. He was cast down to the earth. So where is Satan right now? He is on the earth. He is not able to enter into God's throne room any longer, but rather he is able to do devastating things on the earth. And so in verse 12, we see in particular how the devil feels about this, how he is reacting to this fact that he has been thrown out of heaven. Rejoice therefore, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So heaven rejoices because the devil has been removed, but we on earth experience woe, experience suffering because the devil is now here and he is lashing out all the more because he knows that his time is short. And so the devil is a fierce enemy. And again, he is after our harm. And so because he knows that his time is short, he is scheming up every way he can think of. He is doing everything he can to come against the plan of God, to come against the people of God, and to do them harm. Now, how 
Is the devil going to do that? What is his plan? Well, the rest of the book of Revelation is in part revealing to us the plan that the devil has in order to do us harm. And the reason why the book of Revelation is letting us know about the plan of the devil is precisely so that we, as God's people, can understand the schemes of the devil and resist the devil. Just the way that Peter is telling us to do. Peter gives us three commands in our passage this morning. He says to be watchful, to be sober-minded, and to resist the devil. So how can we be watchful? How can we be sober-minded? How can we resist? Well, we can have our eyes open so that we can watch and be sober-minded by knowing the schemes of the devil, by knowing what is he up to, what is his work about. And so let's look at the other two passages that we read in Revelation so that we can see how this devil who's been cast down from heaven and who's on earth right now, how is he operating so that we can be on our guard? So Revelation 13, verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So mark especially those closing words in verse 2. To it, that is to the beast, the dragon, that is the devil, gave his power and his throne and his great authority. Now, what is this beast that's being described in Revelation? Well, to save us from having to read much more passages, the bottom line is that the beast of Revelation is the governments of the earth. It is the powers of the earth. Now, of course, in the book of Revelation itself, when John was writing, the main power he is thinking of is the power of Rome, right? That was the, that was the government that was in place at the time of John's writing. And yet, The book of Revelation, I do not believe, was just written for people living in ancient Rome. It was written for all Christians across all times. And so when we are asking in our own day, who is the beast? We are to understand that the beast is the powers of the earth, the governments of the earth. Now, this doesn't mean that government itself is a wholly demonic thing or all that government ever does is evil. Right? The New Testament teaches very plainly that all authorities are instituted by God and we are to submit to the authorities. So I'm not saying that authority itself is somehow demonic and First Peter especially. We've seen how much, to the extent to which, we are to submit to the earthly authorities. And nevertheless, we have to understand that Satan wants to use the power of the state, Satan wants to use the power of the government to cause God's people to suffer. This is the first tool that Satan has. It is the tool of power. It is a tool of blunt force. The state, government, anywhere it exists, is simply the monopoly on power. It is those who are allowed to use force, to use coercion, to see that its will is done. Now, sometimes we as Christians can be very thankful for that, right? We can be thankful that the police have guns and they say, if you murder, we will stop you. And so we're thankful for the use of force in that instance. But again, what the devil wants to do is he wants to come in to the government. He wants to twist this use of force in order to harm God's people. And this is exactly what was happening, especially back in Peter's day and John's day when the book of Revelation was being written. All the power of the Roman government 
Satan was working through it in order to kill, in order to destroy the people of God and the church of God. And so we as Christians can't always just look at government with rose-colored glasses, like everything it, it does is going to work out great and is going to be good. Rather, we understand that Satan wants to take the reins of government, wants to take the reins of power in order to turn those reins against the people of God. And I believe that Satan's main object in that kind of persecution and killing the people of God is very simple and straightforward. He wants to get us to reject the Lord. I mean, after all, if we are worried that we're going to die, if we're worried that we're going to be arrested, that we're going to suffer some other kind of legal consequence, then that's a big temptation to leave the Lord, is it not? And that strategy has been effective in the past. It was effective in ancient Rome. Many people who initially confessed Christ when the persecution came, they led away, they turned away from Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, those who truly loved Jesus Christ and held fast to him, their faith, as Peter says, was purified. They became all the more powerful because of the suffering that they endured at the hands of the state. And so this is the, the beast that John is talking about, the beast of Rome, the beast of governmental power. And we can be very thankful in our own day, that in our own nation, that this, this beast of governmental power has been restrained now for hundreds of years, that the people of God have not suffered persecution at the hands of the state. But we should keep in mind that that may not last forever, and we should keep in mind that we do have brothers and sisters in Christ and other places where the beast is very much against them even now. That's why we pray for places like North Korea, China, Eritrea, Iran, Saudi Arabia. There are many nations around the world where the devil does have the reins of power, where he is the beast persecuting the children of God. And so this is not simply an ancient reality. It is a reality in our day and age. And again, it is part of the scheme of the devil. And it's a very fearsome scheme. Governments have done terrible things in their persecution of God's people. And so we pray for those who are experiencing such persecution. And because Peter commands us to be watchful and to be sober-minded, we keep in mind that we want to be ready for that. We, We make up our minds here and now that, hey, if our government changes, and if we start to be prosecuted for some type of Christian obedience, that that will not change our obedience. And we will remain faithful to Jesus Christ. We will not give in to the scheme of the devil. So this is one figure, and this is one way that Satan uses his authority in order to destroy and harm God's people. And again, I think especially in the context of 1 Peter, when he says that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, this is the type of suffering from the devil that he is speaking of. He's saying that governments everywhere are oppressing the people of God. And this is why the devil is described as a roaring lion. But there is another tool that Satan has at his disposal, and this is the tool of Revelation 17. So if you want to turn forward now to Revelation 17. And this is the tool of the devil that I think is probably more applicable to us where we live today. But it is no less a tool of the devil than the beast is, than the power of government is. And so in Revelation 17, beginning in verse 3, it says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, again, notice that relationship there. A woman sitting on a scarlet beast. 
Now what beast is she sitting on? It says the beast was full of blasphemous name, and its head had seven heads and ten horns. Well, if you go back to Revelation 13, who is the beast? It said ten horns and seven heads, blasphemous names on its head. So this woman is sitting on the same beast, this beast of governmental authority, sitting on the same beast that we just learned about in Revelation 13. In other words, the power of the woman and the power of the beast are somehow tied together. They're connected together. They're connected together. And remember, the beast itself gets its power from Satan. Satan is the one that gave his power to the beast. All right, so let's read. What does this woman do? What is she up to? Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations of the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So this is the woman, the woman Babylon. And how is she being an instrument of the devil? How is she seeking to destroy the saints, seeking to destroy God's people? Well, we see that the power of the woman is not same as the power of the beast. The power of the woman is not simply to crush and to destroy. No, the power of the woman is power on the opposite end of the spectrum. It is power to allure, to make appealing, to tempt She's arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. In fact, John even says that when he saw her, he was amazed. This woman looked so beautiful. All of her jewelry and clothing was so amazing. And as verse 5 says, this woman is also the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, Keep in mind that when Scripture talks about prostitution, it's not normally only talking about sexual immorality. Prostitution and sexual unfaithfulness more generally is an image of our faithfulness to God or our lack of faithfulness to God. In Scripture, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, God is depicted as our husband. We are depicted as his bride. And when we disobey God, when we walk away from him, We're not merely breaking a contract. We're not merely just kind of doing an immoral thing. Rather, we are committing adultery. We are committing prostitution. We are leaving our first love and we are going after all these other charms, all these other wonderful things. And so what John is telling us here in Revelation and describing this woman is having purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And if you read on and read more about this What this woman does, what she has, is she has all the wealth of the earth. All the trading that takes place between nations. She is the one who owns all these things. And so what this woman Babylon represents is just the glory of the world. It represents wealth and pleasure and fame. All the things that the people of the world desire. And so this is the second tool of Satan. It is the seduction of wealth. It is the seduction of pleasure. It is the seduction of fame. And so Satan also seeks to carry away and destroy God's people by this means. 
Now, you would think that this woman, because her main power lies in her ability to allure us, to tempt us, would be pretty gentle, would be nice. You know, that she wouldn't seek to destroy the saints, rather she would seek to comfort us so that we always feel good. And to be sure, in an initial moment, at the initial point of introduction, there is a certain level of comfort. But if you look at Revelation 17, verse 6, it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So make no mistake that even though Satan is using this woman on the earth right now, using all the temptations that the world has at its disposal to lead us astray, Satan is not simply seeking to make us comfortable, to make us feel good and be happy. He is seeking to destroy us. The clearest picture, I think, of how this works comes from the book of Proverbs, where a father is warning his son away from an adulterous woman. This is Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And so just listen to this advice that the father gives to his son. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Now just pause there for a moment. Think about the temptations in the world around us. Isn't it not true of all these temptations that we face day to day? They drip honey. They seem smoother than oil. I mean, my goodness, especially the advertising industry in America today, right? Anybody that watches football this afternoon, you're going to hear a lot of words that are dripping with honey and that are smoother than oil. Things that seem so lovely, so attractive, so pleasant. So easy to be seduced into making our life about these things. And yet, as the father goes on to say to the son, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, the path to death. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. She is deceived. But this is why Peter tells us to be watchful, to be sober-minded. Because the instrument that the devil has at his disposal through this woman is the instrument of deception. It is through the instrument of lying. And if you are not watchful, if your eyes are not open. If you just look at every advertisement on TV and you look at those advertisements, you say, yeah, that's the good life right there. I'm just going to buy what they're selling. If you look around to the famous people in our nation today and you say, oh, look how good their life is. Look at the fame that they've attained. I want that kind of fame. If you look at the wealthy people and you think that their life is good, oh, I'm just going to get that kind of wealth. Then, beloved, you are deceived. You are not being watchful. Beloved, our hope is not set upon getting all the latest gadgets, being the coolest, being the best dressed. Our hope is not in any kind of earthly thing. That is the devil's work. That is the devil's message. That is what he wants us to believe. He wants us to be sucked into the patterns of the world. He wants us to go after this woman Babylon whose speech is dripping honey. 
And yet whose end is the way of death, whose end is sharp as any two-edged sword. And so this is why we must be watchful and sober-minded. And so this is the second instrument that Satan has at his disposal, is this instrument of temptation. The woman, all the pleasures of the world. And again, this is what we in the American church are all too familiar with. If we're not very familiar with the power of the beast coming against us with this blunt force, then we are familiar with, far too familiar with, the power of seductive temptation. And beloved, I do believe that we as a church, both meaning providence here, but we as a church across the United States need to find more ways of coming out from this woman Babylon, of not being conformed to the temptations of this present time, and instead living as the pure bride of Christ. We have given in far too much, far too much to this woman Babylon and to the schemes of the devil. We need to be far more watchful. And so how do we do that? So back to 1 Peter. Again, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I hope you see a little more clearly now how the devil is prowling around. He's prowling around through the use of power, but he's also prowling around through all these temptations that present themselves to our face day after day after day. And so what are we to do? Verse 9. We are to resist him. Resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. So at a very basic level, it just means we don't ask questions when we face temptation. We're not seeking nuance like, oh, maybe I can partake in it this much or maybe I can go this far. No, we resist. We say no. We simply deny the devil his power. But again, this is much easier said than done, is it not? When all the world around us, all the culture around us, this woman Babylon is so great and powerful in our day and age, and it seems like she will never go away, how can we possibly resist her? Well, this is where Christ himself, I think, becomes the most wonderful example we could possibly have. Because Christ Jesus himself not only resisted temptation, not only stood up to both the power of the beast and the woman Babylon, but Jesus actually walked into the lion's mouth and tore the lion open from the inside out. One of the remarkable things about the words in this verse, in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. That word firm is very unusual in the Bible. It only happens three other times. But one of those places where it happens is in the book of Isaiah, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where we are told that Jesus set his face like flint as he went to the cross. That word flint is the same word for firm here in 1 Peter 5.9. Our faith is to be like flint. It is to be solid as rock. That's how firm our faith is to be. In Isaiah 50, verses 5 to 7, 
This is one of the servant songs. So the prophet Isaiah speaking of the servant Jesus who was to come. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Do you see how Jesus himself was willing to walk right up to the beast, walk right up to the woman and destroy them? Even as the beast no doubt thought that he was getting the ultimate victory. One of the clearest pictures of Jesus doing this, of him setting his face like flint in the New Testament, comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark 10, verses 32 to 34. This is where Jesus has decided to set his face to Jerusalem, set his face to the cross, and he is going there now. And so what do we read in Mark 10, 32 to 34? This is an amazing description of the determination of the Lord Jesus. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. (laughs) So just pause there and consider the determination of Jesus. He has set his face toward Jerusalem and he is going forward and everybody's behind him and they are actually afraid of him and amazed at him because he just seems so intense, (laughs) because he is so determined to get to Jerusalem and they cannot dissuade him. Mark goes on, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening to to him, saying, see, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to happen, and he has this righteous determination. He has set his face like flint. He is firm in his faith, as Peter says, and he is going to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I want to take this model of Jesus here in Mark 10 and just notice three lessons for us. Both that we can admire Jesus and what he did, but also so we can learn from Jesus and know that his spirit in us is working in the same way if we want to stand firm in our faith, if we want to have a face like flint against the works of the devil. The first thing that we learn about Jesus is that he was absolutely uncompromising. Again, when it says that the disciples were amazed and those who followed were afraid, I think it says that because they realized that Jesus was not going to change course to the right or to the left. He was not going to move one degree off of his father's mission. He had his sights set on the cross like a laser beam, and he was going to move directly toward that. And so, for us, beloved, we must understand that we must be uncompromising in our obedience to Jesus. There is no place for us ever to simply ask the question, what can we get away with? What's okay? To ask how much can we deviate off the course without actually falling off the path? This is not the uncompromising mindset. 
The uncompromising mindset is the mindset that says, I'm going to follow Jesus even if it means death, and I'm not going to move even an inch. And I think we've all probably also experienced times in our lives where being uncompromising in that way requires us to just kind of grit our teeth and move forward with something. It requires us to stop, you know, asking questions, debating, thinking about different options, and just saying, I am moving forward. I think some of the best examples of being uncompromising are the examples of soldiers who do heroic things in the midst of a battle. I mean, one of the most amazing stories, uh, Mel Gibson made a movie about it a few years ago, Hacksaw Ridge, the story of a conscientious objector. So he he wouldn't commit violence himself, he wouldn't carry a weapon, but at that time, the U.S. military didn't care. They said, you're going in the infantry anyway. And so he went in, but they let him be a medic so that he didn't have to carry a weapon. And in the midst of an intense battle in the Pacific, Marines all around him were going down. And he rescued over 70 Marines, dragging them back, running back to the front line, taking another soldier, running back, going back to the front line, doing that 70 times. And as he did that, he was uncompromising. He knew what his mission was. He knew that he had to rescue the next one who had fallen. And so he knew there was danger all around. He knew that he himself might die, but he knew his mission. And so he put one foot in front of the other. He rescued those soldiers and he saved the lives of over 70 men. Beloved, we must have the same type of determination as we walk forward for Jesus Christ, saying, I know it's going to be hard. I know there are dangers. I know I might stumble and fall at points, but I am going to press forward. And so Jesus was uncompromising, and we ourselves must be uncompromising. The second thing we see about Jesus in Mark 10 is that he had his eyes open to the dangers. Again, as Peter instructs us, be sober-minded, be watchful. This was Jesus. He was sober-minded. He knew that when he got to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes were going to deliver him up. That's the woman Babylon in Jesus' context. And they would hand him over to the Gentiles. That's the beast in Jesus' context. He knew that his body was going to be destroyed. And he went. Beloved, we need to have the same sober-mindedness. When we come to Jesus, we must count the cost. Knowing that life is not always going to get better than it was the day before. We're not going to go from victory to victory to victory. Sometimes we will suffer loss. Sometimes we will undergo pain. And yet, we follow him still. We are sober-minded. We don't have rose-colored glasses about the life of following Jesus. We know it's going to be difficult, and yet we press on. The third thing we see about Jesus in his face-like flint, and his determination, is that he knew his identity. So verse 33, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what he's doing, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. He knew that he was the Son of Man. And this is why he had to go to Jerusalem and had to go to the cross. Beloved, if you want to have a faith that is as solid as flint, If you want to be able to be firm in your faith, then you must know your identity. And knowing your identity knows that you know yourself, means that you know yourself as a forgiven child of God. Means that you know that you have been adopted into God's family. 
that you are a son of the king and that God has poured out his spirit upon you so that you are now able to walk in his ways. That is your identity if you are in Jesus Christ. And that is why you cannot veer off to the right or to the left because that is who Jesus Christ himself has made you as you come to him by faith. And so we cannot doubt what God has done for us. We cannot doubt his power in us. We must know who we are. And then the last way that we see Jesus' face being like flint is that he said what would happen after the suffering occurred. And so in Mark 10, 34, it says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. So again, he was watchful. He had his eyes open. But then after that, he says, and after three days, he will rise. But he knew the future and he had no doubt. He said that I will rise. The Son of Man will rise. He knew the future that awaited him, even through the suffering that he was going to have to endure. And in the same way, beloved, if we want to be firm in our faith, yes, we do have to have our eyes open to the sufferings of this present time. We have to have our eyes open to what Babylon is trying to do to us and to what the beast is trying to do to us. We have to have our eyes open to that. We cannot simply stop our vision there and simply be like Eeyore and say, well, I guess I'm going to suffer a lot. That's too bad. No, we have our eyes open to the glorious future. Oh, Peter has told us so many times throughout his letter what we will receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back, that we will receive praise and glory and honor that there is an inheritance that is unfading and imperishable waiting for us. And so we have our eyes on what is coming. And as we fix our eyes there, do we experience suffering at the present time? Yes, we suffer greatly. And again, I pray that God would empower us to suffer all the more. But as we look to the future, we can suffer with enormous joy. Knowing, as Paul said, that the suffering in this present time can't even compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so, beloved, in all these ways, we resist the devil firm in our faith. We are uncompromising. We have our eyes open to the situation around us. We know what we're identity and we know what the future holds. And therefore, when the seduction of Babylon comes around, or when the fearsome power of the beast comes around, when the devil is using all of his schemes to try and devour us, to try and and destroy us, we don't lose heart. And we don't go off the path. Rather, we hold fast to our great Savior, who again knew what awaited him, knew how Satan wanted to devour and destroy him, and marched into the mouth of Satan himself anyways, and destroyed the devil and his lies, so that our eyes could be opened, so that we would not be deceived. Jesus is the greater Samson. Samson who ripped apart that lion with his bare hands. This is what Jesus has done to the lion, the devil. The devil has been cast down, He doesn't have authority in heaven anymore. He is on the earth and he can only do what God gives him permission to do. And therefore, we stand firm knowing that even though the devil has many ways to harm us, that he cannot ultimately overcome us because we belong to the Lord 
And we belong to Jesus Christ, who loves us and who has defeated the devil and who can protect us from all of his schemes. And so with that, would you pray with me now, beloved, that God would work in us to strengthen us, to resist the devil, to fight these battles that God has given us to fight. And would we also pray for those around the world who are suffering in the same way that we are. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not left us unarmed against the devil, but that you have warned us, that you have equipped us, you have given us your spirit, you have given us your word. So God, I do pray that you would strengthen us as a people to see where the devil wants to seduce us, to see where the devil wants to destroy us, and strengthen us to resist him in every way, God, so that we can be a pure and a spotless bride for you. Lord, would you hear our prayers of confession now, hear our prayers of intercession as we lift up one another in this world around us. I ask in Jesus' name.